Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And we are recording this live at the Mo Ranch 2018 Young Adult Retreat. We've been out here in the Texas Hill Country all weekend talking movies and theology and what it means to be a fan and a critic. And last night, we all watched Jeff Nichols' 2016 movie Midnight Special. And this morning here at Mo Ranch, in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about what Midnight Special has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Midnight Special for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be September 30th, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take another second to share another small preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following or Matt, perhaps this week, eating. Oh, all right. So today we're going to talk about Midnight Special, which we all watched here last night. Midnight Special is a superhero movie told through Nichols' own distinctive, almost kind of southern gothic feel. It's the story of a boy named Alton with some kind of little explained electromagnetic powers and of his father, Roy, played by Michael Shannon, who has taken him from the religious cult that was holding and idolizing him. So the two of them, alongside Roy's friend Lucas, played by Joel Edgerton, find themselves in one of the classic American genre films, namely a road movie, trying to get Alton towards something that will let him realize his kind of unknown purpose. There's no way to talk much further about this without spoiling the movie, so here's a heads up to stop listening if you want to keep the surprise. And the last act of this film takes a very close encounters of the third kind direction, where it turns out that Alton's power comes from the fact that he is himself from a world built on top of ours, and he can see it, or at least he can open portals to it. And in the film's climactic sequence, he opens a portal about as large as the Florida Gulf Coast and creates this place where our world and the world beyond ours coexist, at least for a few minutes. Adam, this movie has a lot going on in it. Where do you want to start? What did you think? Well, first, I love the movie. I think Jeff Nichols has done something really interesting here, which is he's combined the quintessential American road movie alongside the uh, the science fiction film with a sort of he- healthy dose of superheroes, and I think it's not it's it's important to recognize that for most of the film, Alton is reading a comic book in the back of a car, and he's reading about Superman, and that there is this question about who this this kid is because he looks human and yet has these powers that that seem like they belong to a different place. And so I, I think the, the amalgamation of those things is, is a 
quite a tight rope to walk and, and Nichols does a really interesting job with it, especially considering that he really leaves behind the type of typical exposition that you get in superhero movies where there's always someone telling you the, the ins and outs of whatever the superhero power is and gives you the insight into what the weakness of the superhero is and, and where they came from and all of the backstory that goes into that. Nichols really um, just never thinks about giving you that information or just denies you that information in order to focus on the relationships. And that's where I would start with this movie is um, I was deeply moved by um, the relationship of parent and child. I think it's the heart of this movie. It's a place where you find the deep commitment that, uh, that parents have to their children who are special. And this child is particularly special and has some real gifts, but there is no parent in the world who doesn't see their child and recognize that that child has some gifts and wants nothing more in the world to protect them and make sure that those gifts find uh, an outlet in the world. And so there are a couple of images that, are, um, that stand out to me that, are, uh, that I went to bed thinking about last night. The, f the first is that there's this moment in the movie where Roy, Alton's father, uh, is, is sort of holding him, and Alton says to Roy, uh, don't worry, Dad. And he says, I like worrying. And as a father myself, I, I, I was deeply moved by that moment because it is, it is among the greatest privileges in the world, which is to be able to see a small child who is both resilient and fragile and try and worry about not just how they will grow up, but about the world that they're growing into. And then there's this other moment in the movie where the car that they're in is about to wreck and Kirsten Dunst, Alton's mom, um, Sarah, covers him, literally like drapes her body over him in order to protect him. And they're both wearing flak jackets, which is in our current world, the most terrifying thing that I can think of is like dressing my child in a, a flak jacket in order to survive in this world. And she covers him and, I, and it felt so deeply moving and it reminded me of, of all of the times in scripture where, uh, where Christ or the psalmist will talk about like the safety and security that comes from the, the wing of a mother and there um, of, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks or a, you know, resting in the safety of the eagle's wing as the psalmist says. And those two images really stand out to me as sort of the beating heart of the movie. There is this sort of sci-fi superhero shell, but at the center of this is, is a story about a family. What about you? What, what was standing out to you as you watched it? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely. And also what's interesting to me is the way in which um, Roy and Alton begin to navigate agency over the course of the movie. Hmm. So part of the sacrifice that Roy makes as the movie goes along is to give his son or is to allow his son more and more decision-making power. Right. So, and it's, it's not necessarily willingly, it's more kind of out of desperation at points, but part of the conceit in the beginning of the movie is that Alton's, superhero, Alton's superpowers render him uh, uh, um, susceptible to natural light. And so they're all traveling at night, he can't see daylight, and then kind of at one of the midway turns, you know, he's, he's getting sicker, his body is getting weaker, and he, and he says to his dad, I have to go outside in the light. 
I'm gonna have to be out there in daytime without protection. And his dad says, you, it, you can't, it'll hurt you, it could kill you. And he says, no, I, I have to do it. And there's this, you know, how, how, do you, how do you listen to the demands, the needs, the agency of your eight-year-old child and to yield that? And once he yields that and it, it goes well, then Alton begins to more and more kind of drive the action and call the play. And he's the one who is making the kind of tactical decisions as the last act of that movie unfolds. And I mean, even more so than kind of the parenting act of, of yielding to him to other powers is even kind of yielding him to himself and allowing mm-hmm. him to, um, to be the person who, who makes the call. So I, I dropped my son off at kindergarten three weeks ago, four weeks ago for the first time. And there's a, a moment where, just to get them acclimated, you know, you sort of hand them off to the teacher. And he turned around and he was sort of waved and then went into the school. And then I immediately got deeply anxious. And I started just thinking about all of these other things. And, um, and I was at work and I was just, just, kind of spiraling out of control. And as I was there, someone was like, oh, oh, is it Elliot's first day at school? And I just, and it clicked, I was like, yeah. And I was like, I need you to excuse me because I'm gonna go and like cry in a dark room for a little bit. Um, because I can't, because I, I can't really deal with this right now. Um, and I actually have to get some work done. Uh, but then there's this moment at the end of the movie where, where it's the, the Alton is, given the opportunity to, to go. And Sarah is looking at him and he waves back to her. And I think what Nichols recognizes is so amazing is that that moment here is sort of in its sci-fi shell, but that moment of a child sort of turning back and waving feels so archaic. It feels so deeply formative as part of people who care about young ones. And I, I think that was the interesting thing to me about this movie too, is like, what is, what is caring for the young actually look like, right? Because there are, um, there's a government institution that is deeply afraid of it, of this young one. And then there is a, um, a sort of religious cult that isn't afraid, but is, wants to control it and wants to worship it. And I think about that as, as we think about youth and young people in our world right now. I think those are the two dominant ways that, we, um, that the culture looks at them. Either on the one hand, they're deeply afraid of them and what they're going to become. And on the second hand, they worship youth and they care about it so much that they want to just like suffocate it and control it. And here in the center of that is, is the parents, but also Lucas, who is this strange character who's also a protector but at some point uh lucas says to roy i'm doing this because i believe in alton and at the center of this is this someone who wants to believe in something and lots of people want to believe in something but how does our belief ultimately affect the way that we uh, interact with the thing that we believe in and i think that's the central question of this movie 
Yeah, and I don't want us to get too far without nodding at least a little bit to the kind of science fiction aspect of this. I mean, the the cosmology here is not complicated. As Alton explains, there's just a world on top of ours, and we can't see it, but it's where I come from. We never learn how it is that he got to the wrong world. I mean, there's some deeply unexplained stuff. But I... What I find fascinating here within that cosmology is that Lucas's superpower is really prophetic imagination. Right. His superpower is really that he can see beyond. And yes, he's got the Superman comic books in the back of this car. That's like the frame of reference that our world has for the powers that he begins to display is that they must be intended for destruction in some way or intended for violence in some way or intended for redemption right i mean right and what what he actually manifests is is this capacity to see beyond which of course is also deeply threatening in its own way but you know he tells the government at one point i'm i'm not a weapon he he understands that he's 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 actually not that he's He's something else, and what, very Iron Giant, right? At that moment, yeah, 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 <laughs> to be sure. But like, what his power is is that he he can pull back the curtain in the way that like the best prophets can, and the best biblical prophets can, the best contemporary prophets in their own way can. Is that he he helps the world engage in a moment of revelation and imagination? Yeah, it, and that's the superpower, right? So what's the superpower? He can see and hear, right? Right. He sees beyond and he hears these satellites and that's it. Like, it's not as if, and I mean, he seems to have some sort of ability to pull things, but he's his, when he sees and looks at someone, they feel the transcendence and then he can hear the conversations of the world. And what is, what's interesting to me is like, what is a deeper, more universal need than to be seen and understood and to be heard? I mean, and he's able to do that. He's manifesting that in a way. And the devotion that he's able to solicit from people after they have been seen by him and after, they, after he hears them is, um, is, is, is religious. It's, it's a deep religious devotion. And I, I appreciate that Nichols doesn't actually ever try and give you the, the mechanism by how all of that works. Right? He, he leaves that a mystery in part because there is a sort of mystery that always accompanies transcendence, which is how did, what happened when you experienced this transcendent thing in worship? What happened when you, tra- you experienced this transcendent moment in relationship? Do you want me to explain it? Right? There's this moment where the Adam Driver, the uh, Paul Sevier character is like, well, tell me what happens when he looks into your eyes. And he's like, I don't even know where to begin, man. And there are moments of transcendence in our own life where someone was like, well, explain that transcendent thing that just happened to us. And we say, I don't even know where to begin. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I mean, that's it. I don't, like, I, I was blind, but now I see. What do you, what else do you want? It's, uh, and I think the film does a good job of leaving that mystery. And I, I think that mystery is ultimately going to confuse and anger some part of the populace but i it, it felt deeply honest to me as someone who likes to think of himself in the transcendence business and it's what lucas says to the fbi agents at the very end of the movie too right when they're they're interrogating him and he's like i can tell it to you however many times you want 
right? But it's not going to give you the answer that you're looking for. Like I, I saw what I saw, um, but it's not it's not explicable in the way that you want it to be. Okay, I think it's time. Yeah. So we on the podcast are going to try and do something different. We have been here at Mo Ranch, and we have been having conversations about movies and pop culture and theology. And now we are going to ask people here who have been in conversation with us for the last couple of days to weigh in and give us their comments about this particular movie and what they saw in it, how it made them feel, and maybe what they what they learned about neighbor or God in the midst of the movie. So, um, so now we're going to invite some people to have a conversation with us. Hi, I'm, I'm Andrew. Um, I was thinking about uh, kind of the beginning of the movie where um, you, the motives of all the characters are still very unclear. Um, you, uh, at least I, I felt like Roy and Lucas, you know, you didn't know if they were, had kidnapped uh, Alton for, and was taking him away from the ranch. You didn't know what their what their motives were. Um, and then uh, the scene where uh, the wreck happens, um, and uh, or I guess another car is hit aside from the one that they are in, uh, and Lucas gets out and uh, like you know set, tells the the state trooper that comes up, hey, you should call like something. And even though he has to like. You know, he, he, he's protecting Alton, so he shoots him, but he still goes over and, like, like radios for help. I don't know. I, I think that, that speaks to, like, establishing him as, like, a, I don't know, a good guy, quote-unquote, in the, in the movie. I thought that was an interesting thing. Yeah, the, the movie does a great job of, of keeping the motives ambiguous until you begin to realize who these people are. And, and I think in this particular film, um, you get hints, but you get, rarely get exposition. And I think that's part of the value of it, is that who is Lucas and who is Roy, you'll know by the end, but at the beginning, you, you, it's media res. Like it's, it's already happening. And, um, and you have tension that is sort of like, uh, that's pulsating at the very beginning that I think helps us realize the stakes of this movie. Yeah, and there's a... He just is so intent on not giving information that you don't have to have uh, until you absolutely have to have it, or in some cases, like, after you would have preferred to have had it. I mean, there's that amazing moment What after the whole sequence that Andrew talked about, then which is all about, you know, this, this, this man was a state trooper. We shot him. We didn't have to do that. There were other ways of handling it. And then 30 minutes later, somebody asked Lucas what he does, and he says, well, I'm a, I'm a state trooper. And it, it totally then kind of reinterprets, and you re-see the opening of the movie uh, through a totally different lens now, you know, several beats after it's already long gone. And, and recognize his sacrifice. Right. And, and I think that's the important part of that scene, too, is that at, at that moment you recognize that his devotion to Alton is superseding these other important identities that he's, um, that he's assumed. Who else wants to come up? Hi, I'm Brittany. Um, another part of the movie that I really... From the beginning, you don't really know if Alton is an evil thing or if he's a good thing or, you know, you're just kind of in limbo. And there's a point where um, they're going around, they go to this person's house who has been to the ranch before. 
and you still don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, and all of a sudden they're all asleep, um, and the house starts shaking really bad, and they run in the bedroom, and his eyes are lit up, and he's looking into this man's eyes, and I, you think you're there, he's killing him or something. You don't really know what's happening. And then whenever they get him out of it and wake him up and all that, um, they tell him, he says, I had to see it again. Hmm. I had to see it one more time. So I thought that was, that was really neat. Have you ever had, a, have you ever had a, a moment where, the sort of, where there was deep longing to experience something that felt transcendent? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Um, yeah, there's a moment, that moment is so special in part because you're getting a sense of, of how attractive this experience is, how it pulls people into the orbit of, of Alton. But also I think it's, what's interesting to me in this movie is, is how people have, have left the ranch. So there is Alton's father, Roy, who, um, who was part of the ranch, it's implied, and had to watch the leader of the cult raise his own child and stuck around to that indignity and pain and anger. And then there's Sarah, the mother, who had to leave. And at one point, another character says that she abandoned Alton. But you realize that that story is actually bigger and harder to understand. Uh, but that the parents themselves are never the ones who are looking into the eyes of Alton, I think is a really important choice made by the director, which is he, he wants you to know that the love that these two parents have is not based upon what Alton can provide them, but is born out of this, the, the transcendence that comes from the bond of parenthood. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that. There's also this moment when they, when they first get to his mom's house. So like the whole time Alton in his father and Lucas's care has had these like blackout goggles on during the day. And as soon as they pull up at mom's house, it's about 45 minutes into the movie or so, the first thing she does is take them off. And he doesn't then like, you know, we don't enter into like the wild laser eye thing that he does elsewhere but it, there is this sense of like i want to see my kid there's a there's an intention on the humanity there uh i don't again i don't entirely know how the mechanics of this all work and we never quite find out but there is one of the ways i think they are introducing and and finding the space between those two parent roles is that dad is so interested in in protection and and, and mom is, is seeing humanity um, in, a, in, in a different kind of way. Yeah, it's beautiful. Anybody else have a comment? I'm Megan. Um, in our discussion earlier this weekend, we talked about how the narratives that we typically like have a problem at the beginning of the movie, and by the end of the movie, it's solved. And at times in this movie, there were things that were unsolved, and it was very unsettling to me. <laughs> I wanted to know um, certain characters that we saw we saw them for a brief time or a couple of times, and then we don't know what happened to them. Like Sarah's mom, we have no idea what the men from the ranch did to her, um, or even what happened to the men from the ranch who were after Alton, and I would have liked to know what happened. Yeah, this movie leaves a lot of things uh, un unsaid and unresolved. You're absolutely right. And, and it's got some... Um, 
I mean, even that very, I, I don't want us to go too far without talking about the very final shot in the movie, too, where, like, Dad is now in prison, we think, or in institutionalized. He's got the, like, electrode thing on his, on, in, in, in his hair. So what are they setting up for? What are they doing? And then he kind of looks up at the sky, and for, like, a hot second, his eyes flash with the, with the kind of light and color that Altons have had the whole time along. <laughs> I've been thinking about that quote where they say that, uh, um, that um, madness is hereditary. You inherit it from your kids. Um, and there's, there's like something like... like, uh, you, you, where, I, like I, have a, I have a mug that says that. Yeah. Uh, and th- there's, there's something here where like Roy has inherited something from his child in this experience. But yeah, there's all kinds of threads. I mean... Mom seems to kind of go on the lamb at the end. Uh, we don't we, we don't know the resolution of lots of things, and so that's I think that's part of it's part of what makes Nichols an interesting filmmaker to me is that he's he's going to tell the story he wants to tell, and he's not gonna he, he doesn't kind of he doesn't hold our hands as much, but it can be frustrating uh, as a viewer to be sure. Right, and you have to fill in a lot of the gaps at that point, which is, uh, he, he, it's not a heavy dialogue movie. Uh, it's a movie told visually. And so you have to look closely at everything, and each frame is trying to say something. And even when you're watching it, not all of the questions are being answered. And we don't ever realize the cosmology of this world except to say there is another reality and it is on top of ours and at the end of the day we can't see it except every so often we get a glimpse and it's usually because someone opens our eyes to it and if we just stay with that idea that is a sort of deeply theological idea. That there is a reality that we have access to that is very material and present, and God is present in that. But there is this other reality, spiritual reality, a, um, a, a reality that, that sits on top of ours that we sometimes gain access to. It's interesting to me that the, the bubble that shows up and covers the Gulf Coast, only covers that place. The rest of the world doesn't get to see this. Only the people there get to see this, right? And, and Christian tradition has always talked about thin places, about these places in the world where, where we, have ac- we have closer access to the spiritual reality that exists beyond our immediate senses. And I think Nichols is playing with that a bit here, which is there is this other reality, and it feels ethereal, and every so often, it also occupies deeply someone. And they have access to both of sections of this. And it's very rare. And the fact of the matter is they never tell you how Alton got this. But when we have come and encountered those types of people who have that access, it remains a mystery how they got it too. And so we, we're left with that mystery, and I feel like Nichols, he likes that. He, likes, he doesn't want to explain everything. It's a, 
it's not unlike the group of people who don't really want to know how the Force works in Star Wars. Like, don't, like I don't care if it's midichlorians or something like that. I'm not going to, I don't want it to be totally explained. I want it to remain sort of a force that I'm trying to understand and wrestle with, but never can fully comprehend. All right, we're going to move on. But before we do, we want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide you to the great content that they're doing. Stephanie Paulsell is doing some awesome work for them right now, especially talking with churches in Boston about a lot of the sexual abuse scandals that are happening there. And, uh, and I encourage you to go and read that. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, we're going to move on to preaching and scripture. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, looking at the lectionary passages for September 30th, the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. The gospel reading from Mark finds Jesus arguing with his disciples about some exorcists who have gone rogue and are working in Jesus' name. There's a passage from the book of James about the power of prayer and worship. There are a couple of chunky Old Testament readings, one from Numbers. The people are complaining in the wilderness. They don't have onions and cucumbers to eat. Uh, and then another from Esther, where she makes her petition to the king at the end of the story. It's really sort of the climax of the story. And as usual, there are a couple of psalms about God's law and about God's vindication. So Matt, as you look at these passages, what sparks for you, given our conversation about Midnight Special? Uh, I'm just thinking about this Esther passage. I mean, it, you know, we've been talking on and off about superhero movies all weekend, and it seems like, you know, that there's kind of the, the, the classic Spider-Man tagline about with great power comes great responsibility, and, and the Esther passage seems like kind of the biblical epitome of that moment. It's Esther has power. She has power by virtue of having access to the king. She has access to the king that no other Jews in the kingdom have. And she sees the threat coming, and the the access that she has gives her gives her opportunity. And in this story, with that opportunity comes a certain amount of responsibility. And so she she has to live into that moment by going to the king by by taking that risk with the power that she has. And it is a risky thing to go and and open herself and make herself vulnerable and put herself on the line to a a, a position of authority and say look, I, I, I need to ask this thing. I need you to do this thing. Uh, I, I think there's something in there about, uh, I think there's something in there that resonates with how we talk about superhero movies broadly. And I also think there's something that resonates with Midnight Special. I, I mean, how, uh, Lucas is a character who has a very specific kind of power and access here because oh. of, of his, uh, because he's a state trooper and he has, oh. He, he has tactical skills, he has equipment, he has capacity, and he, and he puts that to a risk. He, he risks that. He walks away from his regular life in search of this thing and uses it and, and uses the power that he has in, in this specific way. Uh, you know, the NSA agent as well kind of has power and access and... and um, and, and find, when, when he finds this opportunity, he has to use it with responsibility. Um, I don't know that we say the same for, uh, for Alton, who's, um, 
who doesn't seem to, to make a choice with his power in the same kind of way, but I, I could be convinced otherwise. But nonetheless, I think there's something certainly broadly about the superhero trope and, and explored a little bit here. What do we do with the powers that we have? What about you? Well, in addition to that, I think, I mean, the Esther passage has this delicious irony, right? Which is that there are these gallows that Mordecai has, or uh, that Haman has created to kill all of the Jews, to exterminate the Jews, and those are ultimately the things that he goes and gets murdered on. And, and you see this sort of inversion, like the thing that is being used to try and um, uh, hurt someone actually is sort of moved back towards them or is, or is, is turned around to them. And, and I think about that as, um, as the people, the ranch, have this sort of religious fanaticism that that builds around alton and it's ultimately their undoing their need to be close especially the um the 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 leader of the cult his need to control alton is the very thing that um that creates roy who then needs to pull him away right and um so there are all of these like moments in the movie where the um the deep need that someone has to try and like make Alton submit is the thing that ultimately is their undoing in the end. And I, and I find that that particular piece of the Esther story is always supposed to be played for laughs, right? I mean, if you're ever at a Purim uh, gathering, you know, where they, where they do the Esther story, you're supposed to laugh that the thing that is supposed to spell the demise for the Jews is ultimately going to spell demise for Haman. But I think also um, the, the passage in Mark where there are these sort of rogue exorcists who are casting out demons is also so interesting, in part because, you know, Mark, Mark loves exorcists, right? Like, he wants to make sure that you know that Jesus is an exorcist and that there seems to be um, demons running around, and they have, like, real control over people, and they're, they're actually, like— uh, they're sucking life out of people. They're, they're destroying a self. And here are these sort of rogue exercises coming, going out, and the disciples are jealous. And they can't, they can't get over the fact that these people are doing this and they're not following them. And I think that's a really important part of the, the passage. It begins like, we saw them and they were not following us rather than we saw them cast out demons and they were not following you. And there seems to be a, a, a misunderstanding of who's in control and what's going on that I also see in this movie, right? The NSA and the ranch don't quite understand who's in control or what's going on. And the types of devote, they don't actually have devotion. They want to control this, this boy. Whereas Sarah and Lucas and Roy are trying to secure, preserve, get this person to an unknown location in a bayou somewhere. <laughs> right. There's, there's trust in something that they can't control and an, and an interest in, in seeking it to its end, kind of regardless of where it goes. There's a, even as, even when Roy is in full protector mode, there is, there's there's a discipleship to it. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a sense of following, following something that he doesn't get. 
whereas the kind of two big organizations in the film, the ranch and the NSA, FBI, are kind of, they can only speak one kind of language, which is kind of to, to take captive, to consume, and to, to kind of control from the top down. And, and there's something about the disciples who, who don't quite understand where this power comes from. So they're watching another group of people exercise demons, and then they try and do it, and they fail. And there is a insecurity that comes from that failure that is so deep. And, and, and I feel in my own life where I, I look around and I see the work that other people are doing and I'm like, I, I could do that. Why, doesn't, why can't I do that? And, um, and as they bring these people to Jesus or as they begin to um, bring this problem to Jesus, Jesus' response ultimately is like, what are you so scared of? They're doing God's work. In fact, if you continue to get in their way, you're the problem. You've misunderstood their role in the world. And, and they're, they're growing. They'll figure it out. And, and Jesus seems to have this, this great trust that if you're exercising demons, that ultimately that will lead you to God. Whereas, like, the need to control is ultimately born out of a lack of trust, right? Our, our faith says it's going to happen. It's going to be okay. And, you're, and I, too often, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Step aside. I'm going to take control. I'll be all right. I will make it okay. And in trying to make it okay, I get in the way of all of the other things that are in motion to make it okay. And then I get to be the one who decides, yeah. like, that's an authorized way of doing this thing, and this isn't. That's, yeah. This is an authorized way of what church gets to look like, and this isn't. That's an authorized way of what prayer gets to look like, or how God gets to come in, or how the Spirit gets to move, and, and these aren't. And there's a, there's a lot of humility to that instinct that I think is preached really critically and importantly in this passage. Yeah, and I feel that in my own life, which is, you know, I went to seminary or I got ordained or, you know, I have a terminal degree or I like I have all of these things. Doesn't that make me qualified to make this decision? And the spirit of God is like, I mean, sometimes that's the, <laughs> that's the answer, <laughs> you know, not always. And and there's this the, the, that passage gets so severe at the end. And it's almost as if Jesus anger is getting like it's just ramping up. Because he starts to say, like, you who stand in, the, in, in the, the path of these little ones, like, it's going to be the millstone around your neck, and you're the one who's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And, and, and if, you get, if there's something getting in your way, then you've got to, like, cut your hand off, you've got to pluck your eye out. And he's talking about this sort of, like, this is, this is very serious for Jesus and Mark's gospel. And... At that moment, he's also saying, like, the stakes are so high here. Don't you understand the stakes? So do everything. And, and I, see, I think we see some of that in Midnight Special, too, which is, like, there are people who understand the stakes and people who don't. There are people who understand that, like, what's at stake? This, the little one and his life. And we ought to move heaven and earth. We ought to sacrifice everything for the sake of that one. 
So here's my somewhat related question. Do you think that there's going to be a what happens to all the folks in the Florida Gulf Coast who have seen this vision? And, <laughs> and, and is there going to be a new cult? I mean, what, like, what emerges for them after this collective shared experience? Quite separate from like, the specific disciples, Roy or Lucas or Sarah, who have kind of split in different ways. But you know, what I suspect, you know, after, as soon as we finished the movie last night, someone here asked me, so is, is, is there a part two? I'm like, well, not that I know of, and I guess they could go back to it, but my suspicion is part two is like the, the Alton cult that emerges in the Florida Gulf Coast around people who have seen this vision, and all of a sudden it gets tied down in all of the same yeah. kind of institutional stuff. Or the, the Bright Lights cult, right? Because right. It, it's unlikely they saw Alton, no yeah, one sure. seems to have yeah. seen Alton, but, but they saw these structures. Right. And, and, and I'm not sure that anyone saw the agents of it, right? Which is an interesting part of, it's an interesting decision. It's not, and, and it's hard to see them. They're, they're sort of ambient floating lights of some sort. And it was only when they took form in Alton that we, that we realized that they had some agency. But now we see the we see their buildings. We know that they exist. We know that there is another alternative reality. I don't know. This is like this is such a common movie question, right? Which is when you see the other reality, how are people going to react? This is basically Men in Black, right? <laughs> like this is like like what do we protect people and and create a story for them so that they won't have to deal with this information that doesn't fit into the paradigm of understanding that they operate from? Uh, do we make new narratives? Do we make new religions? Do we make new things to, um, to now pull in this new information? Uh, or something else? I mean, so this is, gonna get, this is a weird direction, Matt. Okay. But there are lots of people who think like, if an alien shows up tomorrow, like how should that affect our theology? Are you asking me that question? I'm not, no, I mean, you don't have to have a question, you don't have an answer to that, but there is this, this sure. idea that there's like, you know, how do we deal with that which we have not experienced yet? We seem to have some confidence that that which has been done, uh, we have seen, that everything has been done, I mean, more or less that the phenomenon of the world is observable and there's nothing new that can enter into it. But what happens when something new enters into it? And I think that's an important theological question in part because, um, because the spirit of God blow where she listeth. Yeah. And it's the question the disciples face, right? They don't, they don't get it. They understand that Jesus can cast out demons and they've created a cosmology around that. And as soon as someone else starts doing it, it it blows their brains, and, yeah. it, and, it, and it causes this deep crisis. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's 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 not unpaved road, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and but I think the question is, is, as people of faith, as people in ministry, is there a flexibility that we can have to make room for this stuff? I hope so. I think so. I mean, I hope so too, and I think it's going to be in, increasingly more important as culture changes as rapidly as it does. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a good note to wrap up our conversation of Midnight Special, but we are going to move on to our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following or, I guess, eating, Adam. So tell me about <laughs> it. What's your postlude for the week? Uh, so we are in the hill country of Texas. We've got a lot of Texans. How many Texans are in this room right now? That's, uh, that's nearly all of them, except for me and someone from Louisiana. Um, uh, I, I feel a little out of place. Um, but I'll tell you where I didn't feel out of place. So um, I, I had a chance to, uh, to come in a little early, and Matt and I got to hang out. And, uh, and Matt was like, all right, let's go get some barbecue. And so I went to Law Barbecue in Austin, Texas the other day, and, uh, and we ate a lot of barbecue. <laughs> um, and we were talking in the line about uh, the sort of the liturgy that comes around this, whether it's the, in the cooking, in the waiting in line, in the sort of hushed tones by which you order this stuff. I was so taken by the fact that you, you sort of, um, you get there, and they're like, here's a small piece of brisket. And I looked at it, and I was like, that looks like a communion wafer to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you eat it, and then, uh, and then you order, and then you stuff yourself with food. And, um, and I was looking around while we were eating, and I was just overwhelmed by people's delight um, by the ways in which this food was shared and, and ultimately how... Um, how there are these long lines and everyone seemed to think that it was worth waiting in line for. And, um, and there, was a, there was a real devotion there. And, um, and it just reminded me of the power of food and the ways in which it gathers us together and, um, and is so instrumental in creating communities. And when that food is especially good and when there is care and love put into it, it's an ingredient that that we can't really measure but is um but has deep effect on the lives of people and so i i just i was so taken not just by how good the food was but by how the food was creating community um and um and even you know as as we sat and ate matt like i was i was just deeply moved by the opportunity to sort of um, to stop and talk about things of consequence and talk about things that matter over food that um, that in in many ways um, was nourishing that conversation. So that's my post loop. It's a little sappy. What about you? Is it the same one? It's the Is same it? one, right? <laughs> oh, it's like an O. Henry yeah. story. We got each other the same <laughs> post loop. No, I, I've, there, there is a hymn in the Presbyterian hymnal that I've been a little obsessed with as of late. It's called a Hallelujah, and we are singing. It comes out of the Muscogee uh, tribal tradition in Oklahoma. And um, it's in the new Presbyterian hymnals, in the previous Presbyterian hymnal, came, started showing up in kind of English language hymnals in the, in the late 80s. And I was doing a little bit of research on this and found myself... Uh, watching a documentary that I, I want to recommend called This May Be the Last Time, which is um, made by a, a Muscogee director, and it's about the um, Muscogee hymn tradition, the kind of what they call the Creek Indian hymns. 
These are hymns that are sung in churches on the Oklahoma reservations and Christian churches there have been singing this kind of same free line style of hymnody for hundreds of years. And then about a decade ago, there's a, a white musician who was a member of one of those churches who heard a story on NPR about a music conference at Yale where they had brought together a group of Scottish line singers and Appalachian folk singers and Southern gospel African-American singers to realize the kind of common threads that all of those traditions had. This guy's listening on NPR and he goes, crap, like that's the stuff I sing every Sunday here in Oklahoma. So he calls up Yale and gets in touch. Yale professor flies out and realizes this tradition, this musical tradition that has been more or less untouched for hundreds of years in Oklahoma uh, is, is genetic mat, is a genetic match to these other traditions and they can rewind and find them all in the same place in basically the Georgia colonial moment where b before those tribes were put on the trail of tears to Oklahoma, when Scottish missionaries were doing evangelism in that, in that geographic place, when the first slave ships were arriving and these cultures were meeting under not entirely wonderful circumstances, but nonetheless that like this musical form is forged in the meeting of them. And so it, I, it's not a, it's a great 60 minute documentary that's about 90 minutes long. And so it, 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 I wanted to have some editing, but the ideas in it are really fascinating, both about kind of how these communities continue and hold this liturgy and what the liturgy means to them as people of faith and as people of a cultural identity. So if you just are interested in the liturgy for its own sake, I can't recommend this enough, but the, the argument that's got me underneath, that's grabbing me, is, is, is made towards the end of the, the film, which is, look, if what we mean by America is this idea of the joining and the matching and the collision of cultures that happens in that colonial moment, then there's a very good argument to be made that this is the first American music. And, and, it's, and it survives intact in this little pocket that no one's noticed outside of it for hundreds of years. And there's something cool about that. That's amazing. So there's, um, in popular science in the late 19th century, like 1898 or someone, someone went to go and try and figure out like where did the African-American spirituals come from? And they started interviewing um, different former slaves who, who were instrumental in creating that form. And one of them said, uh, you white people like notes. Said, but we we like us a bit of mixtery, which is this amazing portmanteau, right? It's amazing, like it's mixing. It's the mystery mix of how all of this stuff arises. And to hear you talk about that is, it it sounds like there's this wonderful bit of mystery that's that's going on with this with the music and how it arrives. Well, that about wraps it up for the episode today. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and thanks to the good folks here at Mo Ranch. That's you all. Thank you very much. You all have been awesome. Yeah, they exist. <clears throat> Uh, our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, The Prayer Tank. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.